all the other feelings that I had about being gay were completely suppressed and pushed down. One of my brothers turned to me and said, you should be getting married soon. Those words put me into a mode of panic. What are they going to say if I don't get married? I better follow in those steps that are expected of me. So I did that. Green lights and blue skies are on Well, welcome to Crosstalk. I want to welcome my guest, Mark O. Mark is with us today to share his story and to tell you how his life is, how it was, and how it started. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Corey. It's good to be here. I'm really glad that, that you're with us today. I'm excited. Uh, personally, I'm excited. I'm excited for everybody else uh, to be able to learn a little bit about you and your story and uh, I know it's going to be one that's ins inspiring to everybody. So tell us a little bit about how life started for uh, Mark O. Hmm. How did life start? Life started in Albany, New York in 1969. Uh, I am the youngest of seven children, Irish Catholic family, and um, life, was, life was good. I never wanted for anything in my life. However, at a very young age, I noticed that I was different than everybody else. And I didn't quite know what to do with those feelings, emotions, and it was something that I struggled with, that I couldn't really identify what was different about me, but it was really an internal feeling that I had that uh, I just didn't fit in. At what age did you recognize that as being the case? I would say around seven or eight, and maybe it wasn't <clears throat> until 12 or 13 that I knew that I was gay, but I didn't know what to do about it. Um, I had that attraction, I had that feeling, but being the youngest of seven kids, five boys and two girls, it wasn't anything that we talked about. You know, emotions weren't something that were freely expressed. Emotions, whether it was about boys or girls, you didn't talk about anything, that. Anything. Anything. You know, so, you know, that was in the early 80s. I went to a Catholic boys' school. I then went to military school which is always a fun fact that I tell people now that I am out and, and sober. The fun fact that I, I can't say that I survived military school, but I, I did it for three years. And it was a day school, it wasn't boarding school. Um, but I floundered in school during those years. Academics were horrible. Um, I'm not a sports person, I couldn't play sports. So again, in that environment, particularly in high school, I felt completely out of place. And that's when I discovered alcohol. Age? I would say my first drink was easily 12 or 13. Really? For sure. You know, our household, a lot of things centered around cocktails and alcohol. My, my parents both drank um, during those years 
The drinking age in New York State was 18, <coughs> so all my siblings were drinking. Um, and, and alcohol for most of my life was kind of a center point of social activities, evening activities. It just, it was, it was a constant. I can't remember when my first drink was or what it was, but I know that the instant that I had alcohol in me, I changed on the inside. What did it do? It kind of took away all of those inhibitions, and, and, um, but it also took away kind of the, the feelings that I had about myself. And, and it made me happy. It made me the best dancer, the best singer, the most social person. Um, it, it transported me away from myself um, because I couldn't sit with who I really was. And I couldn't sit with who I really was for 46 years. And you know, we, we talk about in recovery programs and, and meetings that I go to that there is a God-sized hole that is empty. And I really felt empty for, for 46 years. And alcohol and then pills became what I filled that hole with. For most of my life, I went and did what family expected of me, society expected of me, followed in the footsteps of my siblings as far as, you know, college, career, getting married, having children. Everything on the outside looked perfect. You kind of did what you were told to do. Told to do, exactly. And ignored the script that you thought well, you probably didn't even know what I, I, script. I didn't know what that script was, Corey. I didn't know what it was, so I followed suit. There was no other script. There wasn't a script. I didn't have that script. Right. And it wasn't until I got sober, and this just, it, it doesn't have to do with drinking and drugging and, and coming out, but I didn't know that I had choices, that I could veer from the norm and be happy and content and fulfilled. Why do you suppose that is? Do you, you suppose it is, is be, because you would have disappointed other people? Or? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. It wasn't the norm, and if it wasn't the norm, then people talk about you. Mm -hmm. And I don't like people to talk about me. So at the end of the day, it's that you wanted to be accepted. Completely. And if you didn't do what the norm was, they wouldn't accept you, and that was unacceptable. Correct, correct. And most importantly, I would say with my family, with my parents, because it, it just wasn't the norm. And they were of a generation where coming out or being gay was not the norm. I look back now, and my parents have both passed, which is also part of my story. But I know that had I done that at the age of 18, 20, 25, I would have been 100% accepted and loved. I know that. But I had to go through what I went through to get where I am sitting here today. And that's part of my story. And I can't look back at I should have, could have. I can't do that because it's made me who I am today. So when I talk, and when I talk in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, when I talk to another person that's struggling,
I can share that journey of pain, of shame, of guilt, because it's, it's brought me to this other side. So I want to get back a little bit. It's fascinating to me because I identify with a lot of different things that are, that are in your story. But I, I don't want this to be about me. I want it to be about you. The feeling of not wanting to disappoint mm-hmm. everybody mm-hmm. Um, and just getting comfortable with drinking, just getting comfortable, feeling like it kind of relieved whatever uh, stress was mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. So you're in military school. You're in high school. You're drinking. And you're not fitting in. So pick us up from there and tell us how things went from there. So military school did not really pan out for me academically. So I then repeated my junior year and I went to boarding school for two years in um, northwest Connecticut. That is where the drinking really picked up. I can tell you that I was caught drinking numerous occasions during high school. I was on probation during the last year and a half of boarding school. And I think the only reason I did not get completely kicked out was that my father was on the board of trustees. <laughs> so I had a little bit of an edge. But um, that, that is where the drinking escalated. Um, I did have a couple of <clears throat> girlfriends in, in high school, but it, um, I didn't do any other, there were, there were a lot of hard drugs as well in boarding school. There was acid, there was marijuana. I never went in that direction. I, I strictly stuck to alcohol because it was, um, in my mind then it was the safest. It just brought me to a place where I felt accepted, I felt normal, and I was always a very happy drunk. So it, it brought me to be kind of the center of the social aspect in high school. And, you know, Mark doesn't play sports. He plays sports badly. He's had one or two girlfriends. But Mark can drink. Mark can drink a lot. Mark can drink well. And that was socially acceptable that was in your peers. completely socially acceptable amongst my peers. You know, it, it just continued to escalate. I went to college. I drank through college. Being arrested, ending up in the emergency room, that was never part of my story. So for my entire drinking career, I felt like I, I had everything under control. I just drank. I drank a lot. And Post-college, I lived here in Manhattan. I had an amazing internship with CBS News during my junior year of college that stretched out through the time that I graduated, and then I stayed in that business with CBS. I went on to CNN. I worked in major television networks for 17 years. Always had very good jobs. Always was being promoted and, and... did extremely well in in that profession. Never missed a day of work because of my drinking. Never was drunk at a company event. Well, maybe one or two, but not not that I was like brought out. So, um, so what happened between the time you grew up, college is over, and now you're working for how many? Seventeen years. For 17 years, I was in television, and then for 10 years, I was on the agency side of public relations firms. See, I didn't realize you were this old. 
I had no idea. Look at him. Does he look no. like he could be working for 27 no. years? Not possible. <laughs> but 32 <laughs> now or more than that. Yeah. All right, just throw the towel in. I think this is it. <laughs> But uh, so, so the drinking, you were drinking? Drink. I was drinking all the way through. Um, that, that never stopped. I'll never forget at a family event, one of my brothers turned to me and said, you should be, you should be getting married soon. I didn't have a girlfriend at the time. You should be getting married soon. How old soon. are you at this point? 24, 25. Um, so at the beginning of your... CBS career. Yeah, that was that was in the midst of it. Um, CBS. I was at CNN probably then, and then I went back to CBS. Um, and you know, those words kind of put me into a mode of panic. What are they going to say if I don't get married? I better get a girlfriend. I better get married. I better follow in those steps that are expected of me. So I did that. I did that, and I got married at the age of 29 to a childhood friend who I had known forever since we were babies growing up in Rhode Island. And it was a family that we were close to, my parents were close with the parents, our grandparents knew each other, and she had moved to New York a couple years prior, and we started dating, and we dated for a year, and we got married in the winter of 1998. And during that time, all the other feelings that I had about being gay were completely suppressed and pushed down. Like, I, I was in love with this person. I wanted to start a life with this person. I wanted to have children with this person. We bought an apartment here in Manhattan. I had a great job. She had a very good career <clears throat> career in interior design. And everything everything was gonna work out as just fine. it was gonna be. It was good. Mom and dad were proud. My siblings were proud. We had a great circle of friends. And it um, it just I, I was checking all the boxes. But I was still drinking, and, and we, we drank together, but I, I always took drinking to another level. Um, Did she also uh, drink? or She drank, but certainly not, not alcoholically like, like me. But she was accepting of that as... Of course, of course. And, you know, I had my, my oldest child when I was 30. She is now 24 years old. Um, soon after we had a child here in Manhattan, we moved out to the suburbs because that's, that's what you do. You buy the house, the white picket fence, the station wagon, suburban, and dad commutes in, mom doesn't work anymore, and you begin this suburban life. Right. And I played that role for eight years. Were you happy? I was drinking all the way through it. I was, I was extremely happy playing that role because I, I was part of the pack. You know, I was part of those male commuters coming into work every day, and I had the kids, and I had the good job because I felt accepted, and I felt like I had achieved that milestone of what I should be. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me a little bit of 
you're somebody who, who's in a Broadway show who is an iconic star in a role and plays the role for so long that separating the role from the person is sometimes yeah. different, but it's not. It's not the same person. No. Um, I, I played that role for a long time. And the alcohol was the elixir. The alcohol was the elixir. I would say probably about five or six years into the marriage, I had always kind of dabbled. I actually used to steal my mother's Valium when I was younger. But I finally went to see a psychiatrist here in New York, and he put me on Xanax. And um, that started my, my alcohol and Xanax mix. You know, that continued for... 12 to 15 years of, of benzodiazepines and, and alcohol. For me, eventually, I was never a morning drinker. I can count maybe on one hand the amount of times that I had a drink in the morning. Um, but for me, that pill of Xanax or Clonopin was my morning drink. You know, I needed that to, um, I needed that to function. About... Seven years into my marriage, um, my father got sick with cancer, and um, he died two years later. 2007? 2000. He died November 30th, 2004. Um, yeah, 2004. You got married in 95. I got married in 98. 98. Yep. Um, and he died in 2004. Um devastating grief he was the epitome of the patriarch of a family mm -hmm. and um, everybody's chief enabler <clears throat> you know dad dad took care of everything everything almost to the point of of control you know I don't speak for um, I, I will just say that Addiction runs in my family. I had a sister, Elizabeth, who, who always had struggled with substances and had been in and out of treatment. And um, she had finally gotten what we thought clean and sober. Um, she had found um, a man. She had gotten married. She had a young child. And again... You, you look at the picture on the outside and you don't really know what, what is going on on the inside. And the death of our father had a tremendous effect on her. And um, it was um, two weeks after our father died on December 16th of 2004 uh, that she was found dead in our family home in Loudonville, New York, um, sleeping next to her then two-year-old son. And um, when we got that news, I'll never forget sitting in my office. I was head of public relations for the Food Network at that time down in Chelsea. And um, I had called my friend Kathleen Finch who worked in that office, and I said, now my sister's dead. And what happened in the next 12 hours of 
getting myself back to Connecticut, telling my wife and my children that my sister had died. My father had just died 17 days earlier. And um, we drove home to my mother's house in, in Loudonville, New York. And I'll never forget walking into that house and seeing my mother sitting there in her chair. And within 15 minutes, she said, your sister died of a heart problem. Really? Um, and and I, I talk about this openly now because... Um, you know, it, it is part of my story, and, it, and it's part of, you know, my, my history. But um, what we later came to find out is that she had ingested the liquid morphine that had been given to my father during his last couple of days in hospice at home, and she aspirated in her sleep. So unintentionally, you know, somebody who was really struggling and really hurting um, was a mother, was a wife, was a sister. Um, and, it, and it was just too much for her. And, um, and it was too much for her husband, who one week later committed suicide. Oh, my God. With this two-year-old child, um, all of us who are reeling from the deaths of our father, our sister... Um, brother-in-law and that is really when (laughs) like I just became completely numb I had no idea what grief and loss was or or how to walk through it the only way I knew how to walk through grief and loss was with a bottle of wine and a couple Xanax and it took 10 years um and I say now that I literally was in a brownout slash blackout for 10 years. Um, our mother died February 3rd after that. Um, and, you know, she had struggled with um, some health issues, but I, I really feel that um, she died of an overwhelming broken heart. You know, her husband of nearly 50 years. No parent should ever have to bury a child. Um, and and we we I say we we got through it we got through it because I am sitting here today Um, but that was really what kicked off my 10 year 10 year run Um, and I ran I ran really fast I didn't like that job let's get another one I don't like that color car I want a blue one tomorrow uh, I don't like where we live. Let's move. So, <clears throat> I don't want to gloss over anything, but I think um, you're you're taking us to ten years following the two thousand four tragedies mm-hmm. in the family. Mm-hmm. You were married in t- nineteen ninety eight, and you said you had an eight year marriage. So, so no, I had a eighteen year marriage. Oh, eighteen eighteen year marriage. Yeah. Okay. Let's correct yeah. the tape. <laughs> Yeah, no, I was still married. Oh, I was still married. I was, yep, I was functioning. I went right back to work after all these funerals. Um, Thank God during those times that Metro North had a bar car because I I yearned for that bar car every evening coming home. Yeah, thank God. 
You couldn't smoke in them, though. That was the only drawback. Those bastards. <laughs> Don't they know what they do to us? I know. I know. Um, but it, it, it was right around that time that, um, that my double life took off. By the way, smoking also? You oh. said you couldn't smoke. I oh, didn't. yeah. Oh, so you were smoking oh, yeah. all of this. What's oh, smoke? yeah. Yeah, why not? Yeah, why not? Go ahead. Pills, booze, nicotine. Yeah. That, w that was the recipe for Mark for 10 years. My grandmother, who spoke Yiddish, had, she used to say, Luzen gain, which in Yiddish means let him go. That sounds like that's what it was like. Go, go, you let know. it go. Let, wheels, it go. let the wheels come off yep. wherever they f end up. Yeah, yeah. The wheels stayed on. They were wobbly at times, but the wheels stayed on for 10 years. Wow. 10 years. So we're now in something like 20... 2000, well, 2005. Uh, from 2005 to 2015, I kept moving my family, my wife and family, farther away from New York. So um, we went to New Hampshire... I don't even know what year it was, maybe 2008, 9, 10, something like that. Let's pick one. Um, something like that, 2010. We picked up out of Fairfield County, Connecticut, and I moved everybody to New Hampshire <coughs> into this small little town where my sister, who I'm very close with, uh, lived. And, but I continued to work in Manhattan. I worked from home a little bit, and then I would commute into Manhattan. And I lived in a hotel room here in Manhattan, the Inc. 48 on 48th and 11th, which was across the street from my office at that time. Uh, and I lived, I had three different jobs, three different companies, all of whom put me up in a hotel room Monday through Friday for nine years. And that's where my double life and my drinking and my, my pill addiction just kicked off. So I would have this secret life in New York, and, and that's really where kind of my, um, you know, how do I say this? Um, <laughs> There's no censors here. I know, but, but then I'm thinking, oh, jeez, who's watching this? Um, so that's where I, I, my gayness really came out. Um, in the city. In the city. Living in a hotel, I would go to bars, I would pick up men, I would sleep with men, I would wake up next to people I didn't know, I would be in a blackout. And then I would get up, I'd take a couple Xanax, and I'd go to work. And everything was fine. So smoking, drinking, benzos, sex. Benzos, sex, yes. Otherwise it was normal. It was completely normal, Corey. All I, of that was normal. My first sponsor, when he qualified, guy named Jack A. used to say, I woke up in a hotel where they'd knock on the door and they'd say, you got a woman in there. This was the early 80s, by the way, so you could say this. And if you said no, they would throw a woman in. He thought it was funny. Today, if you say this, and this is today, you'd be, you know, woke or, or canceled yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is, is that uh, the story is not all that uncommon. No. You know, regardless of, no. of sexual preference, no. they do kind of, the co-occurring disorders kind of go together. All of that. You know, it, it, the hole for me got bigger, so I needed to fill that hole with more things. Um, more things that brought me to a place that I felt 
completely numb, completely out of it. Uh, I didn't feel sad. I didn't feel the grief. I didn't feel the loss. I didn't feel... I, I just didn't feel. I did not feel. I could not feel. You know, losing four people in a span of nine weeks, knowing that I was gay and not being able to voice that or do anything about it. I mean, the stuff that I stifled forever was enormous. Enormous. You know, there's a book called Scary Close. I've talked about this before. Uh, Donald Miller wrote a, a bestseller, a New York Times bestseller, and he interviewed a woman who was a palliative care nurse. And she said that she had met with people who were on their dying weeks to live, and they many were very happy about things that had happened about their life, very proud, but the regret, the most common regret people who were dying had was that they lived their life in a way that others wanted them to live rather than the life that they wanted to live mm. themselves. Mm. And Donald Miller says, you know, I wrote things. Sometimes I didn't publish them because I didn't think that people would accept them. They weren't good enough. He said, you know, what would it be like on your dying bed, on your deathbed, surrounded with the people that love you the most, and they have no idea who you are? What a sad commentary that would be. And that's the kind of life mm. that he described all these people were doing. It sounds like you didn't have to be one of those people. No, I don't have to be one of those people. So we're now at a pivot point in your story. Right. right. Let's pivot. Right. Let's pivot to August 12, 2015. And I woke up in that hotel room in my clothes vague recollection of where I had been the night before. No phone. No wallet. And I had this moment of I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore and, and survive. The, the pain was, was deep, but it was also a bit of an outer body experience because what I did in that moment was I picked up the phone and I called my wife and I said, I need to go to treatment. And she said, okay, hang on. That was about 9.30 or 10 o'clock in the morning. I was in a detox in Pennsylvania by 6 o'clock that night. And I woke up. I remember hearing bits and pieces of, I'm going to Florida. I'm going to Minnesota. He's too drunk to fly. We can't get him through TSA. And I woke up in this bed, and I looked around, and I thought, maybe I'm in Florida, so I opened up the window shade. I didn't see any palm trees. I opened up this door, and directly outside the door was a nurse's station, and across the nurse's station said, Karen. 
and I yelled across the hall. I said, where am I? And she said, you're at Karen Detox, sir. I said, well, I can read that, but what state am I in? She said, you're in Pennsylvania. I said, oh, I hate Pennsylvania. Why did they bring me to Pennsylvania? Well, I can 100% tell you right here, right now, that bringing me to Pennsylvania on August 12th was the best thing that ever happened to me. I was in treatment for less than 72 hours, and I was sitting in the Chit Chat Lounge auditorium at Karen, and the legendary Father Bill was lecturing all of us, and he said the words, secrets will keep you sick. And my entire body went numb. And I thought, in that instance, there is no chance that I have of staying sober if I am not honest right now. And I raised my hand, and Father Bill called on me, and he said, yep. I said, I'm gay. He goes, okay, good. The entire auditorium cheered. All of my dorm mates rallied around me. And for the first time in my entire life, Corey, this weight, the weight was completely gone. It was gone. There was Mark, gay, alcoholic, pill abuser, with the biggest secret of his life out in the open. Married father of three. Married father of three beautiful daughters, a loving and supporting wife, loving and supportive family. And what transpired over the rest of the 30 days that I was there was a, um, was a battle with myself, was a battle with every therapist that I encountered at Karen because I would not let them tell my wife. And session after session of we need to have her here, we need to disclose, everything will be contained, we will be here to support you, we will be here to support her. Nope, 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 nope. And there were ways that um, the wonderful, spectacular therapist at Karen that kept trying to open that door for me to do this. Um, But I walked out of there on September 10th, 2015. I got on a train in Philadelphia, feeling like I was an alien dropped from outer space. Now, you had left treatment at that point. You had concluded treatment. I had concluded treatment, yep. So so you're on a train. So I'm on my way home. How many days in treatment? I was there a total about 35 days. So 35 days, you're sober, you're on a train, you're not in the cart where they have alcohol. Nope, nope. No drinking? Alcohol was not even, didn't even cross my mind. Um, On my way home to my wife and my three daughters. And I got home to, we were living in Rhode Island at that point. And uh, it was September 10th. My kids had just started school. Um, 
They came home from school about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Dad's home from rehab. And I remember looking in the hallway and seeing my wife's face coming out of my office. And it was white, and she ran upstairs. And immediately, I thought, she knows. She knows. Did somebody call her? Did she see something? Well, what had happened was she had gone into my bag from Karen and opened up my journal and read the letter that my therapist had me write to her as if I was disclosing everything, every secret, every indiscretion, everything that had transpired in secret for me for, at that time, 16 years of, 17 years of marriage. And again, like that time that I was sitting in chit-chat where I told Father Bill that I was gay, I felt that same relief right then. And they say in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that was one of those moments for me. I couldn't verbally come out and tell her everything. I just couldn't do it. Because I didn't want to hurt her. I didn't want to hurt my children. So a power much, much greater than me took care of that for me right away. I've, I've, I've done a lot of these interviews. I haven't been speechless before. That's very, very powerful. Very powerful. So, um, how did uh, how did you move forward from that point? A lot of anger, a lot of tears, a lot of um, distrust, um, confusion, and I remember calling Kate Appleman and Jen Bender at Karen the next day and I said she knows she knows everything and they said we're gonna send a van you're gonna come back and you're gonna spend 90 days in extended care and I said you know what I'm good I'm really good you know at that time eight years ago my brother Joe had been sober you know, <coughs> 17 or 18 years by that time and and I confided a lot with him and and he really was my my rock and my shoulder and my ear um, during this and I'll never forget the night that um, that that was disclosed and and I knew that that my wife knew everything I, I looked at my discharge papers from Karen and I was like okay you get home find an AA meeting within six hours of getting home it's like okay and we lived in this small town in Rhode Island that was really a summer town. And this was the middle of September, so most everybody in the tourists were all gone. And I found a meeting at 6.30 p.m. at St. Clair's Church in Musquamacut, Rhode Island. And I went there, and I opened the door to this room, and there were four little old ladies sitting around a pound cake. And I busted in, and I burst into tears, and I told them everything. 
And every single one of those ladies turned to me and said, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Come back tomorrow. There's a meeting at 7.30 a.m. at St. Pius Church. There's a meeting at 12 noon at the other church. There's a meeting at 7.30 at this church. And I threw myself into those rooms three times a day for the first almost two years of my sobriety. And I came home from that meeting with those women and I remember holding my 30-day coin from Karen and I'm talking to my brother on the phone and she knows everything and I don't know. And he kept saying, just turn it over. Just turn it over. Turn it over. And as I'm holding this coin, I'm going, what do you mean turn it over? Turn it, what are you talking no concept of, of all the stuff that I have learned over the eight years of now being sober, um, that I did have to give it up to something much greater than me. And, and I had to completely, again, surrender myself to what was going to happen. Um, and the only thing I knew is that if I did pick up a drink or a pill, all bets are off again, all of it. So the only thing I had to do was not drink or drug, and everything will fall into place. Putting this into um, words from a um, to try to help people that are listening to our podcast is that we can't control everything that happens. What we can control is what we do with ourselves, and higher power, God, whatever it might be for you, whatever your higher power might be, the idea is to let go of the things outside of your control, to do the things that we can do um, right in the moment that we're in right now, right. and everything's going to be okay. And that, that's kind of what the message that you got then. That's the only thing that you can really um, hear, because you can't fix everything that's ever happened. <laughs> you know, you want no. to, but you no. can't. You can just no. do what you can do in that moment. That's it. That's it. I, I had to not drink, <clears throat> um, and, I, and I just had to take everything as it came, and, and taking the questions, you know, my poor wife at the time, my, my siblings, we didn't tell our children until about a month after that. Um, about addiction or about gay? No, they knew about addiction, about gay. Okay. Um, so, you know, my, my wife and I had you know, gone to a therapist numerous times, you know, right after that to kind of understand, um, kind of help us as, as a couple then to, to kind of have, how do we move forward? Um, but also how as, as parents do we disclose this to my children who are at that time were 15, 14 and 11. Um, so it, it took, it took a lot of time. Um, a lot it, of courage. It, it, people say that to me now, but um, I didn't have a choice other than to be courageous. I don't like that word courageous because I think it's too... Makes it more than it is? Yeah. Um, I, I think that... Um, all I had to do was be honest and truthful and, and speaking the truth and living the truth. And I think that's, 
biggest thing that um, if anybody who is listening to this takes away is is really just live your truth. You know, by the time my wife had read that letter, she knew everything. There was nothing. There was nothing that was hidden anymore. Nothing. It actually was the best thing that could have happened. It was happened. the best damn thing that could have ever happened to me. Right. So it sounds like once the air was outside of the balloon, so to speak, or popped, in this case probably a, a pin popped the balloon, mm -hmm. um, it was a, a question of not what to do next, how to accomplish it. What's the best way to kind of live your life and for her to live her life and the kids to grow mm -hmm. up in mm -hmm. such a way that everybody could be happy and healthy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, how the hell did you get happy how and healthy? How did I get happy and healthy? Well... I know you're healthy. It, it, was it a, seems like you're happy. <laughs> I am happy. So, I am happy. I am happy. Tell everybody what the hell they have to so, do. So, you know, it took... I did not work for a year and a half. And that was not really by choice. When I went to go back <clears> to my <throat> old job at a PR agency here in Manhattan, this young HR administrative person said, well, we have some reservations about you coming back post-rehab. And I thought to myself, that's like completely illegal. But again, God was doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. And towards the end of that year and a half, I, I had, you know, a few months after all of this was disclosed and came out and the kids were dealing with it, I moved out of our marital home and moved in with a brother um, close to them in trying to move myself into back into my career here in New York City, find a job in PR and just go back. Never happened, never happened, never happened. Um, and I finally decided during that time, what can I do in this field of addiction and recovery? with my background of marketing and public relations. How do I, how do I work in this field? I didn't know. I knew how to network because I was a PR person. Um, so the first thing I did was I became a, um, a recovery coach. Um, and I started networking around and I worked for a concierge behavioral health company out of Boston that's where I got connected to somebody else in Fairfield County who was running the lighthouse, Trey Laird, the men's sober living. A terrific sober living, by the way. Amazing. Amazing. And Arden O'Connor was the first person that gave me a chance with and runs O'Connor Professional Group, no relation to me. Um, and then Trey Laird gave me a chance. And, you know, we started small, but eventually I was running all of admissions and marketing for him. And that was in end of 2017, beginning of 2018. Um, I have since been trained uh, to do interventions. I have continued doing recovery coaching. And now, three years later, I work for the treatment center that gave me this big, beautiful life. And they're pretty terrific, too. They're amazing. They're amazing. So your personal life and your professional life is now together, mm -hmm. helping other people mm -hmm. to find uh, the right way home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
It's a, a great story. How are your kids? My kids are amazing. Yeah. Amazing. And you're um, close with them? Very close. Very close. Um, Claire is 24, uh, lives here in Manhattan, and works in PR. Uh, Emmy is 22, just graduated from the College of Charleston, lived with me for the summer, and worked for her sister at the PR firm. Wow. Has decided she doesn't like New York and is making her way down to Charleston, hopefully soon, with a job. And my youngest, Breck, is a sophomore at uh, Delaware. Wow, it's a great school. Another thing I'm curious about, are you and your ex-wife uh, friendly? Is that a, Of course. It's a good yeah. relationship? Yeah. You know, we, we will be co-parents for the rest of our lives. And she remarried in October, which I am thrilled for her. And, and she is happy. And, you know, she has found love. And, and somebody is loving her in a way that I wasn't able to do. And, and for that, I have to be grateful. And, um, and, and my kids are happy and well-adjusted, so I really, I'm, I'm working in, I don't even call it work. You know, I, I have a newfound purpose, and, and it's become my life of, of helping others get what I have. I know personally, having worked with you, um, with some people who need recovery, need to find the way, how brilliant you are with people and how sensitive and how much time you spend with people that have no chance of ever being patients <laughs> or clients or, or in any way connected to economic value just to try to help people. So I don't really know anybody whose heart is bigger than yours. Mom, and nice. beyond the heart thing, this is the part that really has to be said. The uh, level of competence that you bring to the table when you speak to people is really enormous. And you've helped so many people. And I know you're going to help uh, many people going forward. So I'm personally lucky to have you as my friend. And I'm so lucky to have you as a resource because many people... I speak to ask me questions that I have no frickin' idea <laughs> how to answer. So you're the one who answers the questions, and and I'm I'm grateful for our relationship and for everything that you do. Well, thank you. That is all way too kind. Um, well, maybe I went over a little bit. Just maybe a little bit. I, I may, maybe I just Wait, add some. No. Um, you know, uh, again, it, it's, it's what I do, and I, I will do it seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and, and it's not work. It's, it's simply helping other people. Helping other people one day at a time. One day at a time. Right. So bring it in. Come on. Thank you, sir. Oh, thank you. Great. It was great.